The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. President Trump signs an executive order slapping Iran with a new wave of hard-hitting sanctions, specifically targeting the country's supreme leader. My only message is he has the potential to have a great country and quickly, very quickly. And I think they should do that rather than going along this very destructive path. And Israelis and Palestinians opting out of a Middle East summit geared at finding peace for the Middle East after $50 billion in suggested investment. President Trump is reportedly comfortable with any outcome from trade talks with Chinese President Xi Jinping as top officials from Washington and Beijing hold a phone call ahead of their meeting later this week. Stocks across Asia come under pressure as a U.S. judge reportedly finds three Chinese banks in contempt for failing to comply in a probe into North Korea sanctions violations. Well, a very warm welcome to Squawk Box. We are coming off of a fairly mixed day for trade stateside yesterday. As you can see beside me, all three major indices ended in a fairly mixed territory. The Dow Jones a touch higher, about three basis points, with the S&P and the NASDAQ pulling back slightly. Remember, this, of course, comes off of a, a decent week last week where we saw gains for all three major indices. But Friday, that momentum really paused as U.S.-Iran relations came into focus yesterday. Uh, Tensions escalated even further with the U.S. slapping new sanctions uh, on the supreme leader. So that situation continues to hang over markets. Uh, for the month, though, I think it's important to note that the Dow, the S&P, and the Nasdaq are all up over 7%. So it has been a strong three weeks for markets. The Fed, of course, a key driver of that last week, uh, striking a fairly dovish tone when it comes to the prospect of, of further rate cuts. Now, as we look ahead, all eyes on the G20 summit at the end of the week where U.S. President uh, Trump and President Xi in China are set to hold a one-on-one -on -one meeting on the sidelines. So the, uh, the market is watching for any signs of progress when it comes to trade between those two nations. Now let's take a look at dollar crosses. Uh, the dollar has been, of course, a, a key focal point for investors given the Fed uh, moves that we've seen. Now we are seeing uh, the dollar lose a little bit of ground versus the yen uh, down about 0.4%. 4%, so a bit of a bid there. The euro trading higher versus the dollar as well, up about 11 basis points, and sterling as well, up about 9 basis points versus the dollar. It's been an interesting uh, uh, couple of weeks for gold as well, eh? in, in contrast to what we've seen with the dollar, gold hitting uh, the highest levels we've seen in quite some time. So uh, the, the gold price, of course, linked very largely to what the Fed does. Uh, let's move on to Asia and see what, we, uh, what we're seeing here. As I mentioned in the headlines there, we have seen a pullback in uh, in Asian markets, in particular in China. Shanghai Composite down about 1.8%. Banks in particular are uh, are being hit hard in the overnight session. But overall, it is a red picture. The Nikkei 225 down about 0.78%. A big week for Japanese companies with various AGMs taking place. Nissan, one of the big ones yes, uh, that overnight has held their meeting. So uh, a lot for investors to digest on the corporate front as well. Let's zoom in on Chinese markets. As I mentioned, uh, they are uh, 
uh, one of the key weak points uh, for markets overnight. So the Shenzhen Composite down about 2%, and as I pointed out, the Shanghai Composite down about 1.8%, and the uh, CSI 300 down more than 2% as well. Let's take a look at opening calls and see how this puts, uh, puts us in place for the European Open. A mixed picture. We are seeing the DAX and the FTSE MIB indicating a lower open, while UK and French stocks are looking at a slightly more positive open to trade uh, this morning. Jeff? Juliana, thank you. President Trump has slapped a fresh round of sanctions on Iran amid escalating tensions, targeting the country's leadership in an executive order. Trump imposed penalties which would freeze the assets of Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, along with several other top officials. The U.S. president said the measures are a, quote, proportionate response after Iran shot down an unmanned drone over the Strait of Hormuz. Signing the executive order, Trump urged Iran to engage in talks. My only message is this. He has the potential to have a great country and quickly, very quickly. And I think they should do that rather than going along this very destructive path. Destructive for everybody. Destructive for everybody. Uh, we can't let him have a nuclear weapon. He said he doesn't want nuclear weapons. It's a great thing to say. But a lot of things have been said over the years, and it turns out to be not so. But he said very openly and plainly for everyone to hear that he does not want to have nuclear weapons. So if that's the case, we can do something very quickly. Now, Iran's ambassador to the U.N. hit out at the newly imposed sanctions and called on the U.S. to de-escalate tensions. We want neither war nor an escalation of tension in the Persian Gulf region. But certain circles from inside and outside of the region through dangerous acts are attempting to escalate the tensions. The U.S. is looking to develop a coalition with allies to protect freedom of navigation in the Gulf, according to a senior U.S. State Department official. It comes as President Trump raised questions over why the U.S. is, quote, protecting the shipping lanes for other countries, citing China and Japan as nations who get oil from the Strait of Hormuz. Now, Hadley has more from the Middle East peace meeting in Manama. Hadley, what more can you tell us on the state of things in this region? <laughs> so much to tell, Juliana. It's difficult to narrow it all down. But I want to point out something that I think is incredibly significant for the future of U.S. foreign policy in this region, and that is the comments from President Trump um, that, frankly, uh, I and so many others have been anticipating over the last couple of years. We've really had the chance now to see the Trump doctrine at work. And one of the things uh, that's become very, very apparent is um, you got to pay to play. Now, it's interesting. If you take a look at those tweets uh, from the president, he went on to say that China gets 91 percent of its oil from the strait, as well as Japan. He misspelled strait, I might add. Uh, and many others likewise. And essentially, he said that, it, you know, it's a dangerous journey. And when it comes uh, to being there, the U.S. Uh, is being now by far the world's largest energy producer. It doesn't make sense that we would continue uh, to support, uh, essentially, the movement of crude from this part of the world and other products uh, to Asian markets. Now, this is something, as you know, that I spoke uh, extensively about with the U.S. Special Representative on Iran, Ryan Hook, over the weekend. He previewed U.S. sanctions for us. He talked to us about red lines. But at the end of the day, what I found very interesting about this conversation is what he was willing to say about what's going to happen at the G20 later this week. Listen in. And we think that there's an opportunity for countries to play a role contributing to maritime security so that we can deter any future attacks on Iran by Iran on oil tankers. Are we talking about China, potentially? Because at the end of the day, it seems as if the United States is funding um, the security of oil supplies to Asia. 
Well, burden sharing is very important to President Trump. Uh, and so Should we know we that... pick up some of that price tag? Well, we'll get into discussions. Uh, the G20 is coming up. And so that's a good uh, forum uh, for, I think, leaders to talk about uh, maritime security and freedom of navigation. Now, in terms of that war of words between Washington and Tehran, I just want to bring up that the foreign minister of Iran, Javid Zarif, essentially came out very, very shortly thereafter uh, the president's tweets and said, uh, Donald Trump is 100 percent right that the U.S. has no business in the Persian Gulf. Now, this would have been years, decades of foreign policy in this region coming from the United States. We're, of course, here not just to support those shipping lanes, but also in terms of the security uh, of our Gulf Arab allies like Saudi Arabia, like the UAE. We're here in Manoma, Bahrain. This is, of course, the location of the U.S. Fifth Fleet um, and the trillions of dollars that are spent every single year uh, to, to keep the Fifth Fleet operational, patrolling those coastlines and keeping the strait clear. So uh, this is certainly something uh, that's very, very much on the minds of the folks attending this piece to prosperity conference, no doubt. Hadley, just very briefly from me on this, um, I was intrigued by this because uh, in many minds, the authority of the US Navy on the sea lanes in the Middle East is very intimately tied in to primacy of the dollar and the role of the US in the energy markets. Is the president perhaps implying that the United States is willing now to forego that um, benefit that it enjoys and is willing to retreat from its role, uh, self-appointed role, I might add, of global policemen on the high seas? One wonders, and that's why I keep saying and hitting this point home again and again, Jeff, because it seems as if uh, this is the beginning of a change, a fundamental change in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and, you know, usually folks are only focused, I think, on, on the small picture. They don't get to the big picture implications of something like this, but you hit the nail on the head right there. This is the bigger question, isn't it? Because if you're going to give up um, supremacy in terms of, uh, of the, the power in certain regions, uh, certainly here in the Middle East, one wonders the knock-on effect and what that actually could do in terms of the United States continuing its role as the global superpower and the policeman of the world. And this does very much play into that, but it's always is the intersection, isn't it, between politics, oil, money, energy, power. All right, Hadley, thank you. Well, sticking with the region, President Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner will today unveil a $50 billion economic package in Bahrain, the first steps aimed at restarting a peace plan between Israel and Palestine. But leaders from neither country will attend. Palestine's president has dismissed the plan, saying a political solution is more important. Now, Hadley, uh, this, is, uh, this is quite interesting. I mean, perhaps more interesting who's not attending than who is attending. So what can really come of of this meeting, given that the two key leaders are absent? It's an excellent question, Juliana, and I think it's one that they will be seeking to answer over the next couple of days. Later in today, we are expecting to hear from Jared Kushner, who's really the author of this Peace to Prosperity conference. We also know that the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, Mr. Stephen Mnuchin, is in attendance as well. Steve Schwartzman is coming. But as you say, representatives from the Palestinians and the Israelis, in short, Supply here, they didn't attend. They decided not to come. The Palestinians have really been hitting out at this um, ahead of this Peace to Prosperity conference saying, hey, listen, this is an attempt to buy us off. You're basically liquidating our cause. Um, and, and then the Israelis remaining pretty silent, maybe willing to watch and wait here. But at the end of the day, what this is about is an opportunity. Uh, according to Mr. Kushner and others, uh, for the Palestinians to really invest or have their economy uh, prosper. So basically, the World Bank said that last year, 2018, uh, that the Palestinian economy grew by zero. 
And we're talking about the future and prosperity of some five to six million people here, aren't we? Now, this is $50 billion of investment over the next 10 years. The bulk of this investment, they're hoping, is going to come from Gulf Arab allies like Saudi Arabia, like the UAE, Bahrain, et cetera. Um, and essentially, this is broken down, apparently, into $13.5 billion in grants, $26 billion in low-interest loans, and about $11 billion in private capital investment. Now, make no mistake about it, this is investment that the Palestinians desperately need, no matter what side of the peace uh, plan or peace uh, accord that you might fall on at this point. This is something that they desperately need. But at the end of the day, um, this is being framed certainly from their side as, as an attempt to buy them off. Now, in terms of what this money could actually put be put to work to do. This is also actually quite political because in one instance, for example, they're talking about a multi-billion dollar uh, transition or transfer corridor between Gaza and the West Bank. Um, that obviously would have to go somewhere through Israel. So, so this ends up being political whether they want it to be or not. But again, the White House really framing this as an opportunity for the Palestinians in terms of uh, their economy, talking about high-speed internet, talking about massive infrastructure development as well, opportunities for education, uh, opportunities for basic things like potable water supplies. Um, things that they desperately need, but at the end of the day, whether this moves the dial forward when it comes to uh, peace in the Middle East, that's a bigger question. Hadley, I'm just frankly confused here, so maybe you can help me out. I I've looked at all of the headlines on Jared Kushner's interviews and his program, and he says this is going to have to, this deal is going to have to fall somewhere between uh, what is it, the Arab Peace Initiative and what Israel may, what on earth is he talking about? The Arab Peace Initiative has been endorsed year after year after year by the Arab League. It effectively has a, um, a signature of confidence on it from the Arab community. And yet he says we're going to get something that doesn't look anything like this, that perhaps is going to force uh, the Arab community to uh, accept concessions. What on earth is he talking about? I think that you've had this yet again, Jeff, the nail on the head right there. I think the problem, of course, is uh, very much a political one. And essentially what we were told ahead of this conference is it was all going to be about uh, the financial side of things, all going to be about the economy. They didn't want to be talking about foreign policy. They didn't want to be talking about um, all the minutiae when it comes to working out some kind of future peace process or peace deal uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians. They really wanted it to be focused on the economy. But you can't have that conversation, as you very rightly point out, without having the bigger conversation about how this plays into the future of this region. And I think it's going to be interesting to see over the next couple of days. You know, at the end of the day, these are good ideas. These are things that, as I say, the Palestinians desperately need in terms of that kind of investment. But there is a political arm to this. And if you're not going to resolve the political side of this, it's very difficult to see how these economic initiatives will really be able to be put to work. Well, fingers crossed. I mean, let's give the man the benefit of the doubt here. I think we all want to see progress on this thorny issue, but I'm still confused as to what this new proposal actually looks like. But Hadley, thank you so much for that. We'll catch up with you very shortly uh, from the Middle East. Uh, let's move on. The economic calendar today is heavily US-focused. We'll get April home price data alongside June consumer confidence, which is seen falling back from May's six-month high. It's also heavy on uh, Fed speak today with updates from Chair Jay Powell alongside regional Fed presidents John Williams, uh, Raphael Bostic and James Bullard. So lots to listen out for. Meanwhile, Barclays calls it a black swan event for the group. We dive into the fund fiasco gripping the French lender Natixis.
And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners, stick around for more. And uh, let's take a look at Chinese markets. Uh, it has been a weak session for these uh, for these equities, in particular the bank stocks. They've been hit hard uh, by uh, some news that a U.S. judge has found three large Chinese banks in contempt for refusing to comply with North Korea sanctions. We'll have more on that after the break. Welcome back, everybody. FedEx is suing the U.S. government over Chinese export restrictions. It says, a quote, an impossible burden. The delivery giant said the measures targeting Huawei and other high-tech manufacturers mean it has to effectively police the millions of packages it ships daily, a logistically impossible task for a private company. FedEx has also apologized for another Chinese delivery mistake which has led the topic uh, FedEx apologizes again to trend on Chinese social media. Top U.S. and Chinese officials have held a phone call to discuss trade ahead of a meeting between Presidents Trump and Xi at the G20 this week. China's Commerce Ministry said U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and Chinese Vice Premier Liu He talked about economic and trade issues at the request of the U.S. side and agreed to maintain contact. President Trump is comfortable with any outcome from his meeting with Xi, that according to a Reuters report which cited a senior U.S. official source. Eunice filed this report from Beijing. Vice Premier Liu He has had a phone conversation with his U.S. counterparts, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer. State news agency Xinhua is reporting that the two sides exchanged opinions on trade and the agency also pointed out that the call was at the invitation of the U.S. Emphasizing that the U.S. initiated reflects one of China's key complaints that the U.S. approach is unilateral and disrespectful of Beijing. I spoke about it with a former official who negotiated trade deals for China, Long Yong Tu, and I asked him whether the Chinese government understood why the U.S. and China's other trading partners are so frustrated with Beijing. This is what he said. Because they, they, they do not have a, a trust on the Chinese government. The Chinese government is very serious about, for instance, uh, uh, making a serious law and treaty uh, law regulations about the protection of IPR, for instance, and also China has uh, uh, established so many uh, courts uh, specifically for the treatment of violation of IPRs, and uh, we are serious about that because protection IPR is not only good for the foreign investors, but also it's good for Chinese uh, inventors and. Uh, so it's a mutually beneficial thing. So the the foreign side should uh, uh, fully understand that uh, the protection IPR or some other uh, requirement from the, uh, the foreign side are also in the fundamental interest of China. The minister hopes that the U.S. and China will be able to move the needle on the trade talks at the G20. He says that he's cautiously optimistic because he believes that the economic incentives are there for a trade truce. Eunice Yoon, CBC Business News, Beijing.
Let's talk to Thomas Kosterk, senior U.S. economist at Pictet Wealth Management. Good morning, Thomas. I was Good struck morning. by, uh, not for the first time, struck by the president's use of language in um, apparently these comments around the upcoming meeting and the fact that he um, is alleged to have said, um, "I'm comfortable with any outcome." It seems to me the bar is being set incredibly low for expectations. Do we need to be concerned about that coming into these meetings at the end of the week? Well, you never know with, uh, with Trump, you know, we, uh, there's some back and forth on, on trade. I mean, we were all surprised by the increase in tariff uh, on Chinese goods from 10 to 25 percent in, in May. Uh, so we seem to get some back and forth on trade. Direction of travel is still for more pressure on, on China, probably. Having said this, you know, I think we could be looking for a truce at the G20 summit. So our baseline is still some sort of symbolic handshaking, an agreement to continue talking. But the risks around this view are, are quite huge. You know, there could be no deal, um, especially as now you have the Federal Reserve that kind of backstops any move from, from Trump, which could lead some, to some moral hazard on, on the trade side. So you, you never know. We have a baseline scenario that is some sort of handshaking, fragile, but at least they continue talking, but you never know. It seems as though that is everyone's baseline scenario, largely because President Trump has proven so unpredictable. Uh, but if we do see an escalation in the tariff situation, I mean, I've seen some of the numbers come through from the analyst community. UBS saying that global growth could be cut 75 basis points if we see uh, an escalation. I mean, are we due to see a real repricing or recalibration re of uh, expectations if we do see an escalation? Right. So there is escalation and escalation. I think the worst outcome would be a, a total breakdown in talks and also Trump putting 25% tariffs on the rest of Chinese imports. It will also send a really bad signal about Trump's intentions because the risk here is that we slide into full-fledged protectionism, including with tariffs on Europe, in Japan, and that could have really, really dire consequences. So, the, you know, it's, it's a question of also where does Trump stop? Our framework to, to, to see Trump is that at the same time, we know he, he needs to, to be tough on China for political reasons. There are, we have elections in the U.S. in 2020. Um, but at the same time, he needs a strong stock market. He needs a strong economy. Otherwise, he could also lose some voters. So there is this tension between those two goals. In terms of the, uh, the upcoming elections and, and President Trump's likely change in behavior, we've seen him put an unprecedented amount of pressure on the Fed already. As we move toward those elections, are we bound to see him at least keep that pressure on, if not ramp it up? And does that therefore mean that we can rely on a, a dovish Fed for the coming, you know, until at least uh, November 2020? Right. So the Fed has already been quite dovish since January. I think they're really in this business cycle um, kind of expansion mode where they want to sustain the business cycle and avoid a recession. So they've been really dovish since January. On top of that, they've been uh, again dovish. And now for political reasons, I mean, definitely they say that, you know, Trump's policies do increase uncertainty, do increase business uncertainty and therefore could actually dent uh, business investment. They want to, to avoid that. So they want to put like to, to draw a line under sentiment and say, well, you know, you need, we, we need to be dovish. So, so yeah, the risk here for the, for the Fed going forward is to the, to, the dovish, uh, to, to the dovish side. We think we see some rate cuts going forward. 
And uh, in terms of just going back to the trade deal, if we do get a comprehensive trade deal, do you think this is going to be enough to really restart uh, activity in the U.S.? As in, uh, companies will rather immediately start investing where they may have been on hold so far, restart the, the CapEx cycle in a big way. Is this going to happen if we see a, a resolution on trade, or may things happen more gradually, or will businesses perhaps even remain cautious? Right. So the, the good news in the U.S. right now is that actually financial conditions are quite uh, loose. So I think that that's really helpful for the U.S. economy. The business investment side is, is the weakest in the, in, in the U.S. right now. The consumer is still doing, uh, doing well. What I'm actually watching is the, whether you know, credit card lending continues uh, in, in the U.S. What you've seen in, in the U.S. is that actually the corporate side is fine on the financing side. But on consumer credit cards, you've seen, you've seen some defaults, some you know, slight rise in defaults on credit cards. That's something I'm watching closely because you need that, that engine of consumer spending to stay strong. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.